Well, our afternoon session will be about the knowledge problem. Uh, we know that knowledge is very important to decision makers. We know that market economies tend to perform better than command economies, probably because market economies aggregate much more information than is possible for a commander at the top of the, uh, the heights of the uh, economy. Uh, that's why Charles Dow invented the Dow Jones averages, because he wanted to find out what the markets were saying. Uh, but governments tend to wards more towards the command approach, because that's basically what government does. And so do central banks. So I would like to apply the, uh, <clears throat> the, the formula that uh, our, sec our Secretary of Defense once applied to the question of knowledge. <clears throat> known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. It's a known known that the Federal Reserve has managed to keep interest rates down to, to a rock bottom level for seven years. That has uh, given the government free credit practically and has given pension fund managers headaches and sometimes nightmares. Uh, I can't think of a uh, uh, the the <clears throat> known unknown, of course, is the um, the fact that the Fed says it's going to raise interest rates, but we don't know when. And the unknown unknown is there may be something in the bushes that's going to jump out and bite us uh, while this process is going on. I can't think of a better panel, a panel better qualified to discuss these issues, to wrestle with these unknowns and knowns than we have here this afternoon. Gerald O'Driscoll, who will go first, uh, has, like all, all members of the panel, uh, has had experience both in the private and public sector. He was an officer of the Dallas Fed and is now a senior fellow here at Cato. Alex Pollack ran the uh, Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago and is now a resident fellow at AEI, American Enterprise Institute. <clears throat> and David Malpass uh, was both in Treasury and State Department in his salad days and now has his own uh, economics shop in SEMA Global. Uh, so we will start with uh, all these panelists, by the way, uh, have written extensively for the public press, including the Wall Street Journal, I'm happy to say, and have made other kinds of appearances in television and wherever. So we'll start with Jerry. <clears throat> Thank you, George and Jim, for inviting me. Uh, in my talk, I focus on one main issue and two protagonists. Uh, 
The issue is the knowledge problem in economics, the title of the session. The protagonists are Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. In my paper, uh, there are subtopics and other actors, and I invite you to read it for fuller development. The problem is that knowledge, the knowledge economists assumed to be available to economic agents, including especially economic policymakers, is not available in any one place, nor can it be assembled in a form that will allow anyone to formulate an optimal policy in the sense the term is used in economics. My specific topic is the knowledge problem in monetary policy, but much of what I said carries over to any economic policy. In the paper, I spend a great deal of time on Hayek's work because the issue pervaded all of it, and the problem is most closely associated with him. Hayek argued that knowledge is inherently dispersed and localized across the population of economic agents. It is not possible to assemble the totality of knowledge existing in society in any one mind or place. Individuals may reveal their localized knowledge by their actions, but they have to be incentivized to do so. Moreover, knowledge is often tacit and cannot be articulated. What the totality of individuals knows far exceeds what any policymaker can know, no matter his expertise and wisdom. This, policy, this knowledge argument of Hayek's is profoundly anti the, the prevailing model of policymaking that smart elites know best what to do. No, they mu know much less than the population as a whole must, knows. His argument first came to light, and George kind of alluded to this, in the socialist calculation debate of the 1930s. I need to point out that socialism at this point in time was not the tame socialism of Bernie Sanders, whom I consider to be the William Jennings Bryan of the 21st century. Socialism, as initially envisioned, assumed the abolition of markets, money, prices, private property, and so forth. It is better thought of in practice as Stalinist communism. First, Ludwig von Mises and later Hayek criticized original socialism as utterly unworkable for a variety of reasons, all of which centered around the, the knowledge problem. There was no conceivable way that a central banker could acquire the, uh, sorry, <laughs> that was an interesting <laughs> slip, that a central planner could acquire the knowledge of all the preferences of consumers. <laughs> I didn't do that deliberately. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all the available resources and their alternative uses without private property, including property and capital goods, and prices and profits, so on. Though not acknowledged at the time, Hayek and Mises won the first round of the debate because socialism, changed meaning as a result of this criticism, and it then became a system to mimic markets and in some variants even entailed profits. It became, it morphed into what is known as social democracy in Europe. So Bernie Sanders really needs to know more about these European countries that he thinks are socialist paradises. Denmark has in fact reformed a lot and become one of the freest economies in the world and is not socialistic in any meaningful sense. Mises and Hayek won the second round of the debate when the Soviet Union collapsed and it was revealed that everything, all the criticisms they had made of it were true. But the central lesson of the debate was forgotten. The knowledge problem is an obstacle to all centralized planning. In a decentralized market economy, millions of consumers and producers face a highly complex coordination problem. 
In a world of discretionary monetary policy, policymakers are tasked with predicting the effects of policy actions on these millions of economic agents. The monetary authority must predict how alternative policy actions alter the plans of millions of people. But the monetary authority, a central bank, cannot know the content of those plans, much less how they're going to be changed. To suppose that a monetary authority can know what it mean, needs to know to conduct policy is to assume the authority can resolve the, mon the knowledge problem. So the monetary authority is in the same position as a planning authority in a centrally planned economy. It is the conceit of central bankers, at least most, not the ones here today, that they can acquire the knowledge needed to conduct optimal monetary policy. In his Nobel Prize lecture, Hayek called that conceit the pretense of knowledge. Now, in my paper, I also spend quite a bit of time detailing Milton Friedman's contribution to this issue. Suffice to say here, it is most often overlooked and instead what I call an impoverished view of Friedman is presented. It often ignores the argument of Friedman's 1967 American Economic Presidential Address on the knowledge problem, as well as earlier contributions. Recent scholarship on Friedman by Ed Nelson buttresses my position. Uh, Nelson traces back to at least 1947, Friedman's, Friedman's starting to grapple with this issue, that policymakers just can't know what they need to know to do the policy. Um, what was Hayek's solution to the knowledge problem? As Friedman was to do later, Hayek argued for the primacy of rules. Uh, it, it's very uh, often economists, when they cite someone, uh, and uh, President Plosser, Mr. Plosser, uh, uh, cited the Kittlin and, uh, sorry, yeah, the Kittlin and Prescott piece this morning. But that argument in Kittlin and Prescott was anticipated by Friedman in that 1967 presidential address and by Hayek in, in his papers in the 1930s. Rules encapsulate accumulated knowledge acquired over long periods of time. Think of the rule of law of which a monetary rule should just be a component. Importantly, rules can incorporate tacit knowledge, which by its very nature cannot be transmitted directly. Under rules, actors can better orient to each other if they are following rules. Each actor is unable to predict precisely the action of all other actors with whom he interacts. If he knows they are following rules, however, he can narrow the scope of uncertainty. To take a non-monetary example, if there is a strong rule of law applicable to all, the purchaser of a product from a stranger faces a reduced risk of a fraudulent transaction. So the rule of law tells him information that he could about his uh, person on the other side of the transaction that he could not possibly know. But it teaches him something about how that person will behave. Namely, he will not defraud him. Both Hayek and Friedman also argued that monetary discretion was a danger to both political and economic liberty. In Capitalism and Freedom, which Friedman wrote in 1962, he described monetary discretion as, quote, a bad system because it gives a few men such power without any effective check by the body politic, this is the key argument against an independent central bank. A decade later, Hayek was to argue that freedom can be preserved only by following principles and is destroyed by following expediency. And discretion in policy, monetary and otherwise, 
is expediency in practice. Now, the argument for rules over discretion is a familiar one, and we've been hearing it all morning. What I have tried to do is ground it in a sophisticated theory of knowledge. Hayek was an original and important contributor to that tradition, as was Friedman to be later. Economists like Karl Brunner and Aaron Meltzer, and more recently John Taylor, have advanced the core of the theory of knowledge and a sound economics of policymaking. And this paragraph, I think, the last paragraph, is made stronger by everything that's happened so far today. The debate over where the debate over monetary policy belongs now is to argue not about whether we should have rules, but what kind of rules should be adopted. And I hope the paper that's in your packet that I wrote advances that cause. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our session title is Monetary Policy and the Knowledge Problem. Uh, I'd like to put this in a shorter, more direct question, which is, does the Federal Reserve know what it's doing? I suggest the answer is no. Uh, moreover, can the Federal Reserve know what it's doing? The answer is also no. That's not because the officers of the Fed are not intelligent or even brilliant in many cases, or because they need to hire a couple hundred more economists, or they don't have enough money for some more computers, but because of the inherent unknowability of the future of complex, recursive, interacting, expectational systems, in other words, because of fundamental uncertainty. So you will see like Jerry, this is just good Hayek. Now, if we think about the Fed, the combination of its unquestioned vast power, which runs throughout the whole world, with an inherent inability to know what it is really doing, makes the Fed, in my view, the most financially dangerous institution in the world. It represents tremendous systemic risk it is the biggest SIFI of them all. Uh, and it represents more systemic risk, or at least more potential systemic risk, than anybody else. Uh, its actions to manipulate the world's dominant fiat currency, uh, based on debatable theories and guesses, uh, can create, and has created, uh, disastrous financial instability, all, of course, in the name of promoting stability. Uh, however good its intentions, uh, does the Fed know what it's actually doing? Clearly it hasn't in the past. It seems to me it's highly dubious in principle than it ever can. And since that is true, how can anybody think the Fed should be an independent power or fiefdom? That is a puzzle indeed. Well, how very different are the real results of discretionary central banking from the fond hopes at the time of the Fed's founding. Uh, William G. McAdoo, a very intelligent and competent man, then Secretary of the Treasury, and therefore, under the original Federal Reserve Act, also Chairman of the new Fed, announced the creation of the Federal Reserve Banks with some remarkable rhetoric. 
the opening of these banks, he said, marks a new era in the history of business and finance in this country. The Federal Reserve Banks will give such stability to the banking business that the extreme fluctuations in interest rates and available credits, which have characterized banking in the past, will be destroyed permanently. It was certainly unwise to promise you had permanently destroyed uh, financial instability. Uh, and in my view, this was a prime example of the dream world that Woodrow Wilson uh, and his company imported from the theorists of the German Empire, namely the notion of government based on the superior knowledge of independent experts modeled on the Prussian bureaucracy, then famous in the world, that bypasses the messy, contentious, and undisciplined world of democratic legislative politics. Now, it's hardly necessary to say how different reality turned out to be from this expectation that McAdoo uh, articulated. Yet, after 101 years of living through unrealistic expectations of what the Fed can do and unrealistic belief in its knowledge and competence, that belief is still prevalent. Uh, a remarkable example, I think, of a secular religious faith. Now, uh, as has been suggested already, why the Fed disappoints these expectations and does not work, as was fondly hoped, is simple and is well known to this audience. The Fed is a continuing effort at central planning and price fixing by committee. And like all such efforts, it is doomed to recurring failure, not constant failure, but recurring failure by the inescapable problem of, of uh, insufficient knowledge, uh, so conclusively demonstrated by Hayek. Uh, like all central planners, it's faced with virtually infinite complexity and massive uncertainty. Uh, and therefore, as we all know, it is equally as bad at forecasting the economic and financial future as everybody else is. And this includes the inability to foresee what the results of its own actions will be. As my friend Brendan Brown wrote recently, uh, in the 1960s, economists thought Keynesian economics had eliminated the business cycle, only to be ridiculed by the 1969-70 and 1973-75 severe downturns. And a generation later, enthusiasts of the great moderation believed they had killed the business cycle only to be dumbfounded by the 2007 to 9 and subsequent crises. Now, of course, uh, institutions change over time. And since the Fed does not operate on knowledge of the future, that being impossible, it has theories. It has, has theories that change over time. Uh, as uh, James Bullard said this morning, very, and I paraphrase it slightly, Every model is merely a wave in an ocean of theories, uh, all moving all the time, if we, if we like this metaphor. Uh, the Fed now, for example, is deeply committed to a target of inflation at 2% a year forever. In other words, perpetual inflation, a target it made up, uh, which means average prices will quintuple in a, these days, expected 
lifetime. Uh, the Fed claims this should be called price stability. Uh, the Federal Reserve Act instructs the Fed to pursue stable prices, not a stable rate of inflation. Uh, but the Fed wants to indulge itself in some new speak here, and who, after all, is to stop it? Who is the Fed's boss? Uh, of course, Fed supporters endlessly say the Fed has to be independent. In other words, that it has and should have uh, no boss. These promoters of Fed independence share a common, unspoken, central assumption, an assumption we and lots of speakers today have already questioned, namely that the Fed is competent to know what to do and therefore to have unchecked power of manipulating money and credit or in an even more grandiose virgin, version of managing the economy, although in fact neither the Fed nor anybody else has the knowledge to do this. Now these uh, arguments for Fed independence seldom or never consider how the Fed should be accountable, how and to whom. It seems clear that every part, every part of a democratic government, and the Fed is part of the government, should be accountable, and that no part of a democratic government, let alone one with such immense power and riskiness as the Fed should be free of checks and balances and free of any serious and substantive accountability. To whom should the Fed be accountable? To its creator, which is the legislature. This is true no matter how much the Fed longs to be free of Congress, no matter how much it thinks that the mere elected re representatives of the people can never understand the mysteries of its high calling, or however, like every bureaucrat, their dream is to be free without having to bother with elected politicians. But this dream of freedom should never be granted to any part of the government, including the Fed. At various times in its history, especially during big wars, the Fed has been entirely subservient to the Treasury Department and devoted itself to loyally monetizing the government's deficit as directed. But at all times, the Fed is the creature of the Congress. In 1965, the House Banking Committee uh, had a project which they called the Federal Reserve System After 50 Years, a review of the first half century. Uh, this was a Congress, of course, at that point, controlled by the Democratic Party, and a banking committee, of course, controlled by the Democratic Party. Uh, their review concluded, to the extent that the board operates, the board, that's the Federal Reserve Board, operates autonomously, it runs contrary to another principle of our constitutional order, that of the accountability of power. In my view, this conclusion was and is correct. As the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York told the 1965 Banking Committee, quote, obviously the Congress which set us up has the authority and should review our actions anytime they want to, in any way they want to, unquote. Uh, this seems to me not only right, but as he said, obviously right. But exactly how 
should the Fed be, be reviewed and be held accountable to Congress for its ongoing actions, for the theories and political preferences that influence those actions, for the trade-offs it makes as between borrowers and savers, for example, and the results of its actions intended or not. Well, we don't see how that's clear. It doesn't happen at the moment. The Fed's Humphrey Hawkins appearances, a 1978 uh, statutory attempt to make the Fed more accountable, certainly do not achieve accountability uh, and are mere media events. Um, we should wonder in particular uh, how central banks should be accountable for their mistakes. Uh, as has been said, central banks have a well-developed resistance to accepting responsibility. Earlier, that was called uh, uh, never apologize, never explain. A pending in the Senate and approved by the Senate Banking Committee is the Financial Regulatory Improvement Bill introduced by Senator Richard Shelby. And among its most important provisions, as it seems to me, are those of Section 501, dealing with new requirements for the Fed's reports to Congress. This section would require the Fed's Open Market Committee, now note it's the Open Market Committee, committee, not the board, to make substantive quarterly reports to the banking committees addressing the Fed's policy decisions, reasoning, monetary policy rules, if any, strategy, economic analysis, forecasts, and, as appropriate, discussion of dissenting opinions, and we should add Scott Sumner's very logical proposal of constant reevaluation of recent actions and are things working out the way we thought. Well, the serious and grown-up discussion that the Shelby Bill intends seems to me a very good idea, which articulates a rational and desirable goal. Could it work? Well, to give it a higher probability of working, I suggest one additional step. Since the current banking committees of both the House and the Senate have, by a curious uh, historical development, become largely housing committees, uh, we ought to rethink the committee structure. There's an interesting analogy here, this focus of the committees on the bank, so-called banking committees on housing. Uh, to the Fed's own balance sheet, which is now disproportionately committed to housing. So I propose that Congress should organize a new joint committee on the Federal Reserve, taking back the Congress's historical responsibility and involvement in money. Remember, the committees used to be called the Committees on Banking and Currency in both the House and the Senate. They've lost that currency focus. I think we need to reinstate it with a new Joint Committee on the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve on this proposal would be the, the sole and crucial jurisdiction of this committee. All the reports so reasonably defined in Senator Shelby's bill would be made to the committee, and it should have the power to audit whatever about the Fed it deems appropriate just as the president of the New York Fed said 50 years ago. It seems to me that such a committee should have a relatively small membership. 
uh, made up of senators and congressmen who become very knowledgeable about the Fed, central banking, the inherent lack of knowledge, and the unavoidable risks and uncertainties involved, the international relations of the tight central banking fraternity uh, among countries, and related questions. Like the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, I believe it should include ex officio members from congressional leadership. This is all by way of saying that the money question, as they used to call it in the days of William Jennings Bryan and the fiery historical debates of previous times, the money question profoundly affects everything else and can put, as we have experienced, everything else at risk. It is far too critical to be left to a fiefdom of alleged philosopher kings. And since the Fed cannot know what it is really doing, it needs to be made seriously and substantively accountable. Thanks. That was very interesting. Um, I want to. I'm, I'm David Malpass. I want to thank uh, George, uh, Jim Dorn, and Cato for the opportunity to speak to you again today. Uh, my paper is called Post-Monetarism, uh, the Fed's Growth Options. So I want to make clear at the outset, I'm not uh, in, I'm, I'm very much a fan of Milton Friedman's work. And so this is in a way the evolution of that. And some may find that it's not to their liking. It's somewhat surreal to be talking today at Cato, seventh year now of near zero rates and $4.5 trillion at the Fed. And we're, we're talking about uh, ways to try to rethink monetary policy. It's very hard for me to get to the rethinking part while we're doing this particular policy. Therefore, my paper, uh, and it's in your packets, comments on the Fed's negative effect on the economy and the steps uh, that we could use to improve uh, that impact right now. I recognize uh, that there's a lot more at stake. And I want to mention two things more at stake, because the rest of my paper is, is pretty mechanical as far as how we could get more growth. But the Fed has become huge and immensely distortive, so we shouldn't forget that. Uh, there's the risk that it will do more. Janet Yellen uh, last week was talking about negative interest rates. She was asked about it, and she said, if the economy slows, we'll consider negative interest rates. The ECB this week and last week had, uh, has this giant mandate. They've managed to take their price stability mandate and convert it into buying anything at any time uh, as a way to try to force the inflation rate up even as it keeps going down. So now they're considering buying muni municipal bonds, structured notes, and regional bonds, uh, things that are con not inconceivable in our system here. So uh, as we think about ways to make the Fed system better, we also ought to, I think, think about the risk that it uh, could get worse. Right now, the rule that we're operating under is bigger Fed. Uh, and so tr trying to recapture that and bring it back to Earth, I think, should be on the back of our minds as they get out of the current uh, ZERP trap. Um, second. Big picture thing is if the if the perception persists uh, in the history books that the Fed's policy of zero rates and QE have been a success, it will weigh on growth for decades. 
Uh, so we heard this morning the reference to, to uh, Paul Volcker saying the Fed never apologizes or admits an error. So if that's where we are left, we can imagine 30 years from now a recession coming and the Fed saying, let's try zero rates and buy some even more uh, large-scale asset purchases than what we've been doing. Um, so it's in that context that I emphasize the urgency of reducing the Fed's expanse uh, in order to preserve its independence, uh, which I support, uh, and to build a more constructive growth framework. So let's see. Uh, so I want to describe, this is descriptive, this is not what I would like to see happen, this is what I think is happening, describing post-monetarism. Central banking in most developed countries has changed to a post-monetarist system. Commercial bank leverage and balance sheets are controlled by direct government regulation rather than indirect monetary tools such as reserve requirement, the availability of bank reserves, and the overnight interest rate. Regulatory decisions control the amount and allocation of credit within the banking system, making it less market-oriented, and regulators are extending these controls into insurance and asset management. We heard this morning uh, 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 Dr. Lacker mentioning the Fed's interest in money market funds. Uh, as the post-monetarist system is currently being implemented, it implies slower average economic growth, although it probably, because it's less market-oriented, but it may also mean steadier credit growth and flatter business cycles than the pro-cyclical credit policies in past decades. So that's one explanation for why bond yields can be low and price earnings multiples in the stock market high under this. We've got less volatility in credit and in the economy than in recent decades. Bank reserves are currently in excess, but even if they were reduced, uh, it's unlikely that bank reserves would be a binding constraint on banking activity given the low reserve requirements. Thus, post-monetarism, uh, and you can disagree with me on this point, post-monetarism, which is direct regulation of the financial system, is likely to become permanent or semi-permanent. It is our system today, uh, adding to the importance of the Federal Reserve switching to growth-oriented policies now. I'm worried that we may sink into negative interest rates because what the Fed is doing doesn't work and is contractionary, so we can imagine moving even deeper into the hole that we're in right now. Uh, I, of course, I would prefer to see a system of rules that are based globally. I like that concept of John Taylor this morning. Uh, I would like to see them based on sound money. I, I promote a strong and stable currency, which each country around the world could adopt. Uh, that would have made Brazil grow much faster than what it's grown in recent years. And it has Milton Friedman at the core, meaning we're talking about the M2 money supply and the importance of sound money. The Fed has four pro-growth options that it should, should consider, and I'll go into those. Uh, these are in sharp, sharp contrast with the Fed's inclination now to respond to slower growth with negative rates or the resumption of asset purchases. That policy, if implemented, would likely worsen the U.S. and global underperformance. This paper, by the way, builds on my presentation in 2012 at the Cato Monetary Conference. It was called The Fed is Contractionary, and all of the work builds on uh, my 2009 and 2010 work in the Wall Street Journal and in my NSEMA papers that near zero rates are hurting the economy. So I described a system where they're 
rationing of credit uh, and where it's being misallocated because of the way the policies are operating. So let me show you a few graphs here uh, and we'll talk about it. This graph shows uh, private sector credit growth. Uh, it's both the demand for credit and the supply of credit within the economy. So there's some kind of, of uh, meshing of the two. Within the system of post-monetarism, what's happened is we're melding monetary policy with credit policy. And right now, it seems to me, credit policy is the more binding constraint. So we can talk about money supply growth, but the reality is the banking system and the credit system as a whole are in a very tight credit condition, contractionary, uh, and uh, that's because of the regulatory overlay sitting. So think what you want of high-powered money or even of the M2 money supply growth. Uh, the reality is very slow credit growth. This graph helps us explain why the uh, velocity of money has gone down on the M2 money supply. Basically what we have, I think, is that bank deposits have gained market share. So M2 money supply has been faster than the overall growth of credit within the economy. That's because deposit insurance is maybe underpriced. So money market funds right now are often depositing money into bank deposits. So you've got a leakage from M3 into M2. So it doesn't create more nominal GDP growth. It just creates uh, a faster M2 growth than the rest of total, total credit. Uh, this graph shows us the, the uh, I'll call it the effective reserve requirement. So this is, uh, all I've done here is bank reserves as a, per, uh, required bank reserves as a percentage of the M2 money supply. And what you can see is by the 2000s, right in the middle uh, uh, of, the, of this, the effective uh, uh, reserve requirement had fallen to practically zero. And even now, it's simply not a binding constraint. So this shows you why we've delinked the M0 monetary base from the M2 money supply. So I think we should stop talking about M0 as being high-powered money. There's no transmission from it into the M2 money supply. That's consistent with Friedman's observation that uh, he would rather watch M1 or M2. Remember, critically, M2 explicitly ex excludes bank reserves. It's not considered money in the definition of M2. And now we have the added problem from, from the Friedman standpoint that M2 is fungible, meaning I can move money from M3 into M2 and change the growth rate of the M2 money supply without having impact into the, uh, into the nominal GDP growth. Uh, okay, so uh, this, this graph shows us the, the, the problem that the Fed has caused through both the zero interest rates and through the uh, uh, bond buying. It, there's a misallocation of credit, whereas the Fed said it would buy bonds, that specifically advantaged bonds against other types of credit. The regulators are controlling the amount of credit within the economy. So if you decide that you're going to advantage bonds within the economy, that's going to channel money to the government and to corporations, as shown on this graph. This comes from the Fed's flow of funds uh, data. So zero interest rates caused a rationing of credit, uh, and, and when, when, whenever credit is constrained the way it is now, and the uh, bond buying is a purchase of duration by the Fed. So rather than thinking of it as stimulative, think of it as a mix shift of the credit within the economy. 
Okay, so uh, we're now in a situation where it's pretty clear uh, that the current policies aren't working and didn't work. Uh, the Fed is not really at that point of uh, agreeing with that, that point, but I think it's clear from the data, and I'll show you that. Um, the, the key policy elements of the, of the current uh, system have worked actually in reverse of the intended stimulus, causing slower than expected GDP growth and disinflation. So the Fed makes forecasts all the time, and they're optimistic that what they're doing is uh, causing stimulus and being accommodative, when if we look back, uh, uh, and Scott was good at pointing out, they ought to be doing this and saying, why is it that we thought we were very stimulative, in fact, massively stimulative, and uh, the forecast kept underperforming? Um, uh, uh, this is the, uh, the harmful effect on the, uh, I'm sorry, on the uh, capital, capital investment within the economy. So we actually have an odd system, odd, odd situation where uh, the, the investment is so weak that there's been an outright nominal decline in orders for capital goods, as shown on the right-hand side of this slide. Uh, also uh, illustrative is the uh, uh, employment to population ratio. Uh, we've got the unemployment rate at 5%, but the employment to population ratio, which Bernanke mentioned as one possible metric, uh, uh, is, uh, is running nearly 5% below where it used to be, and that adds up to 13 million jobs. In other words, we're short in the economy. 13 million jobs, uh, if you want to read it this way, in order to get to, uh, to that form of full employment. Um, and then finally, the Fed's policies are channeling credit to bond issuers, causing a shift in the wealth and income from the middle class to the upper crust. Real median household income is still falling down 1.5% in 2014 from 2013. So this is a massive failure of macroeconomic policy in the US, where the bond buying channels credit and wealth uh, and income into the narrow upper end at the expense of this uh, very real weakness in uh, real median house house household income. Okay, so where do we go? I want to turn uh, to four growth options um, that we could uh, take a look at. Okay, good. Um, by changing the Fed's economic framework, these, these are important, I think, because change on the margin matters in the way the business sector operates. Each of these techniques would add materially to near-term growth by changing the Fed's economic framework. So the private sector would respond if the Fed did something different. They would begin to anticipate an ex economic acceleration. They're, they'd they'd uh, be able to... Right now, growth in GDP, income, credit, and investment have been slow in the recovery, so there's likely to be substantial pent-up activity if confidence about future growth improves. So think about the, the change effect if the Fed were doing something differently, different. So one of the things it could do is consider a rate hike, uh, and I think the important communication technique for the Fed is to say that a rate, they would do a rate hike because it's good for 
for the economy. I'm very worried about this view right now that the economy is able to withstand a, a rate hike. I think it's critical that if the Fed hikes in December, it say that this is going to help loosen credit conditions, create more credit within the economy by, by dealing with lenders. The, the, the Fed's view so far focuses on higher interest rates costs to borrowers. They're very focused on the demand side of credit, when I think the, the operative effect is the mix of credit and the supply of credit on, the, uh, on, on that side. One other factor that's uh, blocking the economy is the weakness in interbank lending, and I think some others will talk about this. Um, at a recent speech, uh, 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 Dr. Bullard said that the, that one of the blockages in this is going to be the Fed needs to shrink its balance sheet quite a bit before that market can pick up. I'm hopeful that the interbank market will resume somewhat if the Fed were raising interest rates even to 25 basis points or and certainly to 50 basis points, it would be enough to uh, work some on the friction within this system. A second thing that the Fed could do uh, is to uh, taper, uh, is to begin tapering its reinvestment. Um, uh, one of the accounting things is if the, if the Fed weren't buying so many bonds all the time, their liabilities would go down, and that would push some of the cash. Some of their liabilities would go down here, and that cash would end up in the banking system. That would be positive and constructive. Um, what, this is the assets of the, of the central bank. So you see the top line, they could allow a burn off of some of the treasury bonds, uh, and that would end up, their, the Fed's liabilities would go down dollar for dollar with the reduction in their assets, and that would end up uh, leaving more money at banks. Right now, banks have a huge portion of their assets, a record portion, on deposit at the Fed, and that takes away from the lending capabilities. A third uh, growth option would be to increase repo borrowing. Uh, this is the liabilities of the Fed. So the top line at the right-hand side shows you the, the uh, excess reserves and also the required reserves, which are minimal right now. And at the bottom, you see the reverse repo. So there's a one-to-one -one correspondence uh, in, in the operation of the current system. Uh, as the Fed expands repo borrowing, it pays cash back to banks, which becomes lendable. And and it's a powerful effect. And we've seen, uh, I want to show you an example of how this worked in 2014. There's, there's been substantial confusion about the economic impact of the Fed's repo borrowing. Um, and so, uh, let's see. Um, repo borrowing provides stimulus, not a tightening, because it shifts some of the Fed's borrowing from banks to non-banks, encouraging bank lending. Uh, an important economic question is how stimulative would this actually be? If the Fed started borrowing from money market funds and from Fannie and Freddie, which it, it now only it does only through the repo market, uh, would that be stimulative and why? Uh, I think there would be an improvement in the quality of credit allocation. There would wouldn't be more money in the economy, but there'd be a different allocation. More of the money in the economy would be at banks, and less would be, uh, excuse me, more of the, there won't be more cash or money in the private sector, just, just a different availability of idle cash. There'd be more idle cash at banks, less at money market funds, 
Fanny and Freddie. I misspoke there on uh, how to phrase that. So the impact of a reduced Fed reliance on bank debt was tested with great success in early 2014. So see on this graph that, that upswing there. The Fed tapered its bond purchases, which allowed slower growth in the bank debt. Uh, and the Fed also shifted some of its borrowing to repos, as you can see on the, on the graph. And so banks suddenly uh, were holding large amounts of idle cash. So the result showed up in CNI loans. So a big shoot up in uh, commercial and industrial lending in early 2014. And remember, real GDP growth surged above 4% in both the second and third quarter of 2014 as a result of this development. Um, and so then, the, the, unfortunately, in May of 2014, the Fed pulled all the way back from normalization. They changed their expectation of the timing of the rate hike. They stopped doing the repo lending, as you saw in that previous graph. Uh, it, it went sharply downward. Uh, and the Fed uh, talked about interest rate increases being way off in the future. And so the economy slowed down materially in the fourth quarter of 2014. I want to mention one other uh, uh, step for, I don't know why that, I didn't do that, or I didn't mean to do that. Uh, my time elapsed, so uh, I have this great, I have this great bar chart. Uh, I'm sure I've done one wrong push here, but I don't know what I did. Uh, uh, so I have this great chart, and it's in the packet, showing that the Fed has this uh, major bunching problem coming up, where they have a lot of short-duration uh, assets coming due. Uh, uh, looks like a trillion dollars over the next three years. Their current policy states that they're going to re- you got your Oh, good. There, bar chart. So look at, look at the bunching. And so a trillion dollars coming due that their stated policy is that it will be reinvested, and there's a chart in the packet to show, reinvested at auction in the bond market. And the assumption is that that means they'll be taking short maturity uh, uh, instruments and investing in long maturity uh, bonds. That means almost like an operation twist. Uh, and so the, we know what happened in 2011 and 2012 as the Fed did operation twist there was a devastating slowdown in GDP growth uh, under that policy. And so that's the prospect over the next one year or two. And so that's why the urgency for the Fed to rethink the reinvestment policy and to begin thinking in terms of itself being a, an owner of duration. From the standpoint of the private sector, the Fed is this 800-pound gorilla that bought long-duration assets. That caused the economy to create long-duration assets, meaning Apple was able to uh, uh, issue a lot of bonds, uh, but that meant that there had to be less lending in other areas. So that was the, the severe uh, contractionary effect from the, from the uh, Fed's operation that I think would be undone if the Fed began thinking of itself as uh, holding too much duration and f following tools that it would allow it to begin to reduce its duration. So in conclusion, uh, I think there needs to be new thinking uh, on regulatory policy. The Fed will need new tools to deal with currencies. My paper uh, explains some of the problems. If you have a situation right now where the Fed is not talking about 
the need for dollar stability and actually succeeds in tightening, uh, in raising the interest rate, loosening credit policy and lending a little bit. Uh, you're going to see, I think, quite a bit of dollar strength, and that's something that the Fed needs to address or Treasury needs to address, but we can't keep ignoring that problem. So the Fed should repeat aspects of the uh, stimulus that it was able to achieve in 2014. It tapered bonds and it, uh, its bond purchases, and it increased repo debt, and the economy immediately responded uh, because there is pent-up demand in the economy. So I think we could achieve that same thing in the near future, meaning into 2015, if it repeated the types of techniques that worked in 2014. Thank you. It's, yeah, thank you. Well, we have uh, about five minutes for questions. Uh, questions. Uh, address your questions to the speakers, of course. To handle it here. Oh, here we are. Hi, Arthur Economic Economic Freedom Institute. My question is to uh, Jerry O'Driscoll. Von Mises' little book on socialism was an intellectual triumph. Hayek followed up with further advances in the theory of central, of, of central control. Both of them missed one serious point. Hayek almost had it, and that is there's no privileged position. No one has the interests of everyone else at heart. There are only selfish controllers. Now, Hayek said, why do the worst get to the top? He should have said, why do those who get to the top the worst, from the point of view of everybody else? We have the same point in central banking. Not only do they have an information problem that Hayek identified, there's a problem of incentives and motivations. Who is the Federal Reserve, whose utility function is the Federal Reserve maximizing? And why should we assume that it's maximizing that of the, if we could calculate it, of the American public? I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, I think Hayek, when he was writing about the socialist calculation debate, essentially said, let's assume everybody has the best motives. And even, even in the road to serfdom, where he got a little bit more realistic, and, and I agree about the chapter, Why the Worst Get on Top, um, uh, he, he still, generally speaking, when he was talking to the people in the West, said, I'm not doubting your motives, but he said, look what actually happens. I, I think it's always good to assume the best motives with people unless you just can't do it. If, could I make a comment there, Chairman? Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Ro Roman poet Uenol wrote the famous line, quis custodiat ipsos custodes, who will, guard, who will guard the guardians, a question as good now as it was then. And the best answer we've ever had is the guardians have to be put into check and balance relationships with each other and, and create accountability. Uh, right there. Hi, Carl Golovin. I'm uh, wondering if rather than rules or uh, 
the freedom of uh, bankers to make decisions over our lives, if we could return to integri integrity-based processes like the Constitution, gold and silver, coin money, and, um, yeah, they simply circulate. They're in your pocket, and bankers aren't deciding that they can steal the value simply uh, at a distance by inflating away the value of paper in your pocket. Secondly, uh, Mr. Pollack in particular, um, if we were to restore an honest monetary unit of account domestically, what about internationally a new Bretton Woods kind of agreement, say, geopolitically based in a neutral sort of area like Iceland? I imagine you know, represent for each, <laughs> each country coming, and they can uh, for, you know, require one another to redeem currency we've dumped into each other's economies for, for gold and simply return it, put it back into circulation in our respective countries. Thank you. At the time of Bretton Woods, it was the American position which prevailed that the U.S. dollar was as good as gold and would be redeemable in gold at a fixed parity, which, of course, didn't last very long, a couple of decades. Uh, the, um, the most recent, uh, from a public point of view, redeemable currents in the, in the United States were, of course, silver certificates which stated on their face that this certifies there is on deposit in the Treasury of the United States one silver dollar payable on demand. In 1964, when the public decided that the dollar was likely to depreciate against silver, there were long lines in front of the Treasury building in Washington of people turning in their silver certificates for silver dollars. What happened? The Secretary of the Treasury announced that silver certificates would no longer be redeemed for silver dollars. Well, we're out of time. Uh, there are, we'll have a, uh, we'll have a uh, 30 minute break. Uh, refreshments are available and uh, back in 30 minutes.